Welcome to the next edition of Simon and White and the podcast at the center of media politics and business. Uh, I'm Christian Whiten, joining as always our co-host Mark Simon. Mark, say hello from quarantine in Taiwan. Hello from quarantine in Taiwan. Last day. <laughs> All One right. Last day. Oh. 14 days in Taiwan in a hotel room. We'll, we'll get to that later uh, because that's an interesting business situation in and of itself. Um, yes, it but <laughs> let's talk about the big picture, which is GDP. So we're done with the third quarter. We're in the fourth quarter right now. Uh, earnings are coming in. And as predicted, they're coming in pretty strong so far, uh, really across the board. No big sectors are surprising on the disappointing side. But it seems that the economy is slowing. It seems like things are not back to normal. Um, these, these sort of transient supply chain problems that we thought would work themselves out, you know, the free market uh, price signals and the desire to trade and sell would, would settle these issues, and it seems not to have. There's still a consensus that GDP for the third quarter, again, the quarter that just ended uh, on September 30th, will come in at 3.5%, but there's actually a reading from the Atlanta Federal Reserve. It's called GDP Now, um, and often it's it's off a bit because it's, it's it uses intermediary um, data, um, but it's usually within about 0.8% of what the Bureau of Economic um, is it Analysis, the BEA, uh, comes out with for their formal estimate. They're going to mm -hmm. do that next Friday. So Friday, what is that, the 28th? Anyway, the Atlanta Fed in that measurement is saying GDP might only be 0.5%. Even if they're off by a full point and GDP is only 1.5%, that's a huge slowdown. And that's a huge disappointment to the downside. People have known, okay, we had this immense stimulus. Government spending is included in the calculation of GDP. Uh, in the fiscal year that ended on September 30th, we spent $7.2 trillion, just a little bit more than half of which was borrowed. An unbelievable spending bonanza to get through a pandemic where we really just had to say, okay, let's go back to work. Um, anyway, uh, you know, one of the big things potentially driving that, you know, when you calculate GDP, if you're talking real, real GDP, you, you subtract off inflation. I do think we're really in sort of a stagflationary um, situation, much more so than people are, are, are grasping. I think we're in, I mean, first of all, um, I tend to like the Atlanta number. I, you know, if you watch the folks in the morning on CNBC or Fox Business or anything like that, they all tend to move. It's, it's always amazing how high they are on things. Uh, I think 3.5% is a disappointment for them. People say, oh, yes, we're going at 3.5%. But you're coming off still a year ago, the worst, you know, part of the pandemic. I mean, think where we were a year ago on the pandemic. We were in near jump off the cliff meltdown mode. Um, look, the economy is slowing for one reason in the U.S. You see it from over here. You talk to people. One of the things about being in quarantine is I drive my friends crazy checking up. How you been? What's going on? Uh, they have one problem and one problem only in, in now, and that's inflationary pressures. And, the, and that's a broad that's a broad statement. I know. Let's go across the board. You've got labor shortages in the U.S. You've got labor shortages in Asia. That's driving up. That's driving up. That's driving up prices. And that means that people are not getting out in front of themselves on certain orders. People always forget that when there's an un, when there's an unclear picture in the future. Businessmen don't make the decisions they need to make to move forward. Uh, so, for example, we are seeing a lot of I'm seeing a lot, I'm hearing a lot of people in manufacturing sector say, hey, 
I've got my orders. I've got things set, but I'm not going to jump off the cliff or anything like that with a new project. I'm just, I'm just, I'm going with what I've got. Um, even when it comes to transportation and warehousing, you know, really you're just trying to get what you've got coming out of your factory moving forward. Are you really going to try to super increase, increase production and things like that? Every time you're going to see the stores in the U S or Europe or somebody like that, or over here, you're going in with a price increase. And so that basically does have a push down effect. We've seen that if you're as old as I am, you've seen that before. Um, I think the other thing is, is that basically maybe we come in at 3%, 3, 3.1%, but you know, that's, that, that's what you did for me last quarter. Now we're in October. People are going, what are you doing for me in Christmas? Gas prices are killing us. My yeah. cousins are truckers. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, the, the blue blood was not in the name in the Simon family. You know, we were the original white trash from Virginia, as we used to say. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is like my cousins are truckers. They own small companies and things like that. Gasoline prices are killing. I mean, it's unbelievable how arrogant, how just arrogant what I call the blue state city people are. They just think it's not a big deal. You know, oh, it's no big deal moving around this and that. Talk to an Uber driver. You know, talk to the guy who drives me to the airport and it now cost him $120 to fill up that Suburban. And it used to cost him, you know, 70. That's coming out of his pocket. And, you know, I'm, I'm paying him five more dollars for the trip. But he, so, he, so he's having to eat some of that. Everything is inflationary. I think GDP is worse off than it is. Um, to me, if you're looking for that, I think basically um, we're going to have to take a hard look at like how you're invested, um, how we're how we're moving forward as a country in terms of investments, making making up for things. Um, one of the things I would expect is I expect if this number comes in low, I think Joe Manchin's and Kristen Sienema, I think they have a number of people start to join them um, moving forward. In other words, that Joe Biden had better hope he gets above 3%, because if he doesn't, there's going to be a lot of people out there saying, hey, I'm not going to pay, I'm not going to spend a trillion dollars on little fluffy programs, you know what I'm saying, uh, right. like in, in, in increases. I g give me $200 billion of that, and let's put it into infrastructure so we can keep people working. So I, I think it's going to be a difficult, a difficult time, but yeah, um, it, coming up. And I think, I think the GDP is slowing. Yeah. Well, and, and this all is happening before we have clarity on the Democrat tax hike. I mean, there is some thought that maybe the Democrats completely go kaput and that the progressives just can't accept any number that is low enough for Mansion and Cinema. And, but my guess is that, you know, this is their, their last, uh, moment in the sun for a while, probably if, if what happens next year, what we expect happens to expect happens, does happen yep. with the house um, that they'll agree on some package. And it's usually not hard to get every Democrat to agree on some sort of tax hikes. And Manchin hasn't really thrown himself under the bus over those. So you have all the slowing happening. And as you point out, business managers may fill existing orders, but um, investing in a new project, building inventory uh, in expectation of, of bigger demand in the future. That's all being put on the side. And if you if you create uncertainty, this is what the whole Obama-Biden era was, was economic uncertainty. You had Obamacare and tax hikes. Um, and there was always a question of what's coming next. And, and once again, we have this you know tremendous uncertainty and a, and a potential supply side shock I mean, coming from tax hikes. This is exactly it. I mean, it's the uncertainty of it. And it's hard for um, a friend of mine calls them galaxy brains. You know, the people who sit around think tanks and everything like that. Look, yeah. America is driven by 
tens of millions of business decisions every day. You know, every day people make these decisions. And if they have an overwhelming cloud behind them and they think it's getting more expensive, it's getting harder, it's getting more difficult, they don't do things. And, you know, that that's that's all it is. And, 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 and the problem with the Biden administration continues to be they have no clue. They don't understand that at all. You know, there was one guy who actually had ever understood this in the whole Obama administration. He left Austin Goldsby. He's the only guy that got maybe you shouldn't call business people evil. Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe every time a business guy walks into a meeting, he shouldn't look for things. I still remember, Christian, it's the funniest. I don't want to embarrass that person. But the funniest thing I ever went to in my entire life was in Pennsylvania. I got asked to go along with a Taiwanese company that was looking to expand into Pennsylvania. We showed up. You know who showed up as part of the meeting? The union guys. It was a a, a moderate manufacturer. You know, I went along with them because they just, they basically wanted the white guy with them. And the union guy showed up. All these Taiwanese guys were U.S. educated. We had a nice lunch. We talked to them. We shook their hands. The guy gave them little things that said union strong or something like that. We got in the car. They drove south. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And my point is, the reason why was it didn't have to do with the environment. They weren't even that scared of a union. It was the uncertainty that was introduced in the meeting of who they're going to have to deal with. You know, in other words, what's coming down, it's, it's, you made it right. more complicated. And I, it took right. me a long time because I thought it was pure anti-union stuff. And it wasn't. It was basically, we don't know if we're going to get a union or not. But they were encouraging right. you to allow the union to organize. Right. And, and yeah, it's, and the problem with unions, stop paying workers higher wages often. It's because your contract is like a phone book um, and yep. uh, the inflexibility that, that comes with and also the hostility between labor and management. Um, and, and, you know, a lot about that, I'm sure, from hotels in Canada. Uh, you know, uh, shifting, um, but still on the topic of the economy broadly. So uh, Goldman Sachs is, is a billion. They're, they're super duper excited. Their unit in China. Um, apparently they own 51%. The Chinese have given them the green light to buy the rest. Um, so they're now going to own their full unit. This has been a long time wish of investment banks doing business in China. Um, the CEO, COO and CFO of Goldman Sachs all put out this rosy statement on how this is the culmination of 17 wonderful years of business in China. Uh, the problem is, is that, I mean, ownership, okay, they have 51%. Going full bore means fewer people at, at, at board meetings, I suppose, that have objectionable views. But if you're doing something in any business, and particularly a highly regulated business like finance, and we've seen how highly regulated that is recently with Evergrande and with China's sort of left turn, if we want to call it that. I mean, is Goldman getting anything here, really? Is there any, does this foretell any sort of benefit for U.S. finance doing business in China? No. I mean, this is the funniest thing about it. This is something that somebody put in motion years ago. You've got 51% of the company. Uh, That 51% basically allows you to, if you're running your business okay and you're running your business straight, which I assume Goldman does at the higher levels, why would you care who sits on your board? They don't want to split profit. They don't want to do this. But that that 49% provides another thing, too. It's called political cover. You've got some friends. You know what I'm saying? Goldman has no friends anymore there. And so now they are purely a foreign firm sitting there. Um, 
but somebody put this in motion years ago. They decided they wanted it. Uh, it's the wonderful way to go. I'm sure guys who make a lot more money than me and think, feel they're a lot smarter than I am think it's a great thing. Here's to me, there's two things we have to remember now. Number one, first of all, we're going to have to look at Goldman in a different manner now, okay, as, as a company. Um, they have essentially, they're inside China, and uh, they are a, uh, a, a firm that is essentially um, part of the Chinese world now in terms of the system. So they're going to defend that system. In other words, when the U.S. government is asking China to do something with their finance system, we have to remember on the other side of the fence now is Goldman Sachs. Because Goldman Sachs is benefiting from that system. They're, they're operating inside the system as a wholly owned entity. So essentially, if we're asking the Chinese to make reforms in their system, who are we going to run into? We're going to run into Goldman because they, they don't want more reforms. They're happy with the system the way it is. That's why they got 100%. So from, from a U.S. governmental point of view there and a U.S. interest point of view, we have to look at Goldman is not on our side anymore. Goldman's not a friend to the United States here. And they are truly a multinational. Uh, Solomon, uh, with his black t-shirt and playing his disco things like a child, um, essentially is the uh, atypical um, evil person. I mean, you you couldn't get, you, you Solomon, you know, people are in internment camps and Goldman Sachs doesn't care one bit, which is very, very, and I'll say it, it's very, very troubling consider the heritage of that firm, that they just have so much tolerance for that. It's, 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 it's shocking, actually. Um, and I, I wouldn't mind having a debate with somebody on that either. Um, you know, that Goldman Sachs is politically correct in everything there is, but my God, when a, when a religious minority is persecuted, they have nothing to say. I, th I think essentially it's a trap. And I think what's happened is, is they're going to get in there um, they'll get the same amount of business they've gotten at a certain point in time. They will be very, they will be very effective. You know, they will do a very good job. And at that point in time, when they become too effective, they will find new regulations against them. And that's why you want to have the partner. You know, there's somebody who would be there who has it, who has, who has a stake in there. They will never be ever a Chinese firm. Never. They will never be a homegrown firm. And they, I don't know why they don't think that. Maybe they think they can get around it. And even if they do, if you look at Ant Financial, if you look at everything Jack Ma's, I mean, you can be uh, as ethnically Chinese as, as mainland as, as it comes, even having all of your operations there. And the CCP, will, you know, you fly too close to the sun, you will get burned. They just uh, control is much more important to them. And even though we had an era where um, presumably lining the correct pockets with the correct amount got you a fair amount of freedom and leeway that that seems to be uh, at least in abeyance, if not over. Kristen, I, I, I have a, a he, he's a very good friend. He's a very good guy. And uh, he's really smart. He works at one of the big investment banks. And uh, politically, he's aligned with us. And he said, look, he said, you got to understand the nature of these big American banks and these big American companies. He said, we're really not American companies anymore. He said, you know, when you look at the senior management of Goldman Sachs in Asia, 
your top guys are not Americans anymore. There's very few Americans at the very top. If you had your top 20 people, maybe you have four or five Americans in there. So they're not there anymore. And as these guys are not there, and as these people are not there any longer, it changes as, as the culture and it changes as how they do that. And they've just kind of become these almost Bond-like villain companies <laughs> that sit out there and they don't have any allegiance to anybody. And in, in a way, I, I kind of think probably if I was sitting around with a bunch of commies in Beijing, we'd have the same view of them and the same. They're loyal <laughs> to no one except themselves. We know what they are. But I do think that essentially, as, as my friend says, he says, look, they don't care. He said they make so much money if they can ride that train for three or four years and then get thrown off. They're fine with that, you know, and some people operate like that. It, yeah. it's, it's fascinating how they do. It's just a shame, you know, it's a big uh, world out there. And even if you take the 1.4 billion Chinese off the table, that still leaves 6 billion other people and a whole lot of What's other that? countries to do business, including you know, sort of impressive and neglected emerging markets, Brazil, India, I don't know, Indonesia, who knows where they are these days. Uh, shifting gears to the media, um, Dave Chappelle, a comedian, <laughs> provocateur. We've talked about him before. His Netflix special, special continues to upset, um, you know, a small number of, of self-regarded activists. It's actually interesting. You know, there's no indication whatsoever that this has caused mass customer complaints to Netflix. You know, he makes fun of, I think, in a creative way of, of sort of transgendered uh, moments. And um, but, you know, you have these activists, you have employees within Netflix who are very upset and, and, and forget that they're actual employees. Um, it's interesting, though. Netflix is sort of sticking by its guns. It's trying to do the usual Hollywood thing where it makes a nod to people who are offended. Uh, and, but it's going across the media too. the CEO of CBS, Viacom, Viacom, CBS. I forget the order there. Uh, Viacom wears the pants. They're the ones with the money, right? Um, I was compelled to, to comment on this. The Netflix boss sort of tried to no comment when he was put on the spot. Um, but it, it, it's kind of chugging along. And I don't know, is this sort of a sign that, that, that we're past peak woke, do you think? Uh I think we'll never be past it because there's one reason. This is a club that that basically untalented people have to wield. You know, it's 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 essentially, you know, if you go into any media organization, you know, the people who are doing the clickbait, you know, the 33-year-old person, guy, girl sitting around, you know, go home with their cat or something like that. All they do is they look for nastiness. And, you know, I watched the Chappelle special. In fact, I watched the, the sensitive part twice because, you know, and I thought it was a funny special. I mean, I, I wasn't falling all over myself. Um, he, he was making some points, you know what I'm saying? But I just find the arguments against Chappelle so uncompelling. And I think we've reached a new stage now that's kind of interesting in the sense that I think that the more this is pushed, the more they the more they push it, the the as you said, we're going past past you know top woke. I think the more they push it, the more they're basically just looking ridiculous. In other words, there's 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 people who don't agree with Chappelle on the issue, and you know he's introduced the word turf. Now more people know what turf means more than anything else, you know, and um, I, st I still trans in it, whatever it is, a trans feminist or radical feminist or something like that. But the thing is, is that 
you're dealing with a situation here where there are offended people of who are trying to force their force their beliefs on others. They're not going to stop. In other words, um, Chappelle has basically he's clearing out the entertainment lane is what he's doing for comedy. But the question you've seen is, if I was at Netflix, I'd have a real concern, real concern about what kind of content I'm going to be able to produce now, because now we know at Netflix there is an army. We had a thousand people walk out who, by the way, just worked at home from Zoom. But with their, who are, we, they had a thousand people walk out. So they've got a, at least a hundred or so people in there who are basically doing their jobs based on ideological quotas. And that's going to be a challenge. And that's why I say the Chappelle thing is so interesting for me for companies in the future. Chappelle's a comedian. They, now they paid him apparently $24 million for this special. But that, so he's fine. He's set. He's bulletproof. Okay. Even after the tax man gets him, the guy's walking at 15 million bucks probably. But, and he, and Dave Chappelle could go out and he could sell out any theater in America anytime he wanted to. He, he's bulletproof. But the thing is, is what we're seeing is, is these companies, I mean, if I'm at Netflix and I'm a senior director at Netflix, I'm worried, are we going to do a cutting edge comedy? Could we even do a 1990s comedy? You keep hearing from people, could you do certain comedies now? And you couldn't do them. Right. You know what I'm saying? Could you use certain words in a comedy now? You couldn't do them. And I think from a company point of view, you're going to have to go out and look around and see what happens. We always expect it in the media business. There's always people who send, you know, we used to have people send messages. We don't like this and that to the business side. And we'd send the message back, you know, F you bugger off, go write your story, you know, and, and, and if you have a strong publishing organization, you'll do okay. But, you know, when, when you see when this ground has been seeded by management um, and it's organized. And so Chappelle, my bet is that Dave Chappelle doesn't get another Netflix special for quite a while. All right. That's my bet. Well, hopefully uh, he'd probably have to take less than 24 million, but uh, going, if, if they, if, if they do that, if they turn a cold shoulder, then just going to other distribution channels and maybe taking an equity piece and, and getting rich what? while also creating an alternative. Well, you know, the other thing, too, Kristen, is this is this is opening an interesting political a political front. And I think it's fascinating. And I, it's not, I'm not the original thinker of this is um, African-American males are particularly paying attention to this debate because they see they get the same pressure. I mean, Walter Kernan the other day said black males are the new white males. I mean, Chappelle is Chappelle is basically be tr being treated. So what did somebody call him? They called him a, a the voice of white racism, cis or whatever it was. Dave Chappelle is essentially being treated as a wealthy white guy. OK, by this community. In other words, you know, he's a lot of his what he's saying is, is that, hey, I'm an African-American guy. I know repression. You, you don't know repression when he talks about it. You know, he says, like, most of my problems are with white people. So Chappelle always touches on these notions, but it seems like the moment he goes to this one group, they get it. And so African-American men are paying attention to this. I, I, I think if I, was the, if I was on the left and I cared about things, I don't think it's a huge deal, but I wouldn't want this theme to continue. I wouldn't think it's a theme that you want to continue for them because I do think that it constantly brings up just this hectoring 
this constant hectoring. And I think that drowns out so many other things. Right. And if it, it just makes it clearer and clearer that PC isn't working for black men, uh, you know, economic, culturally or whatever. Um, you know, I felt this a little bit, not that the, that the, the struggles or anything similar, but uh, as a gay man, just the idea that the LGBT, that the, the T part of that, how, how we let them hitch their wagon to ours. And, you know, if people have really thought through whether that makes sense, what it means, um, yeah, and, and needless to say, of course, I, I don't get a vote in this as a conservative, and uh, you know, it's just the, the self-informed the, 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 the thing is, the thing with the Chappelle show is this. The thing with the Chappelle show is, is uh, there's another gay comedian, his name's Tim Dillon. And Tim Dillon is like, this is comedy. What is wrong with you people? And the problem that, that I see is this, this hunting of him down. Like, you know, they can't, mm -hmm. Dave Chappelle would do this special, it would disappear they could give him an, he would get enough grief that I hate to say it, a white comic probably wouldn't be able to do it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, even Chappelle's kind of said that, you know, he's got, a, he, you know, because he's an African-American, you know, he has a little bit more protection in, in this, in this realm. People don't like to hear it, but I think it's a factual thing. We're getting sure. critical now, I know. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, I, I just, I just, I just think that essentially sometimes when you push your case too far, you end up hurting yourself. It's, it's, I get in trouble all the time in the China community because I'm opposed to a boycott of the Olympics. And it's not, I like the diplomatic boycott. I like all the other things, but why don't I like a boycott? I don't like a boycott of the Olympics for one reason. First of all, there's not the national will in the United States to do it. Mm -hmm. And if there's not the national will, that means that little Sally, who's been practicing ice skating or flujing or whatever they do in the Winter Olympics for the last 15 years, this is her big chance. And for some name that the people of Wisconsin cannot even pronounce in a camp somewhere, I'm sorry, they're going to ask Sally to give up all these things. Sally's not going to do it. So what's going to happen? There's going to be an uprising. Uh, right. Everybody on Facebook, everybody on Instagram, let's save Sally's Olympics, the congressman. In other words, the Uyghur cause and the cause of human rights, you've just made an enemy. Instead of going to these people, talking to Sally and asking Sally, maybe when everything's done, Sally, can you remind people of the Uyghurs? Can you help the Uyghurs? Can you do things for us? In other words, you push people too hard. And the people that were on your side, you know, right. they, they, they wanted to, it's, you know, the greatest human rights line ever came from a Rocky movie. Greatest line oh, ever for human rights. Which one? Which one? Which one? It's which when Rocky? Rocky told Rocky, Rocky, Rocky too. When Rocky told Paulie, Paulie, friends don't do because they got to do. Friends do because they want to do. You got to make your <laughs> friends want to do things for you. That's a great. That's a great line. I don't know how I missed it's that. True. One. That's excellent. It's yeah. true. It's true. You know, friends don't do because they got to do. Friends do because they want to do. And you got to make people want to do things for you. And 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 I and I think that you know Chappelle, essentially, you know he they've given him something that he's making money off of now. If you think he's exploiting that, yeah, I probably wouldn't disagree with you. But then again, you know, you're setting yourself up for it. Right, right. All right. Uh, final topic, since you're there and you're your last or second to last day in quarantine in Taiwan. So Singapore, farther south from you, you know, a not authoritarian, but sort of a managed democracy. They used to have awesome rules like they wouldn't let hippies in or if a hippie wanted to come in, they had to shave their hippie hairdo. Uh, this is a long I time saw, ago. I, yes, I'm that old. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, and then they had they had a ban on chewing gum. Apparently, that's been a curb somewhat. Uh, you know what they're really concerned with is you don't spit the gum on the sidewalk, and you can bring in small quantities of chewing gum into Singapore. Anyway, despite that, so Singaporean Singapore did take a fairly uh, aggressive uh, posture throughout the pandemic, lockdowns, of course, masks. Um, I don't know if they have a vaccine mandate, but they're up to like 80 plus percent or close to 80 percent. I don't know what the, the last numbers are in vaccination. But taking the, the step and saying we're no longer going to have the goal of zero COVID, we're going to accept the fact that we have to live with it. We're in a good position to management. And so they started slow by letting Germans and I think people from Brunei and maybe a couple other countries come in vaccinated. Uh, but they finally opened it up to other countries, including the United States. Um, you'll have to you know, take a flight that is sort of a special vaccine lane. You have to get tested before you go on arrival. And then I think one or two yeah. more times. So it's not just uh, as easy as it is to go to some places in Europe where you flash your vaccine card and everything's kosher. But that's Singapore. Now, contrast that to Japan and Taiwan, where you are, where, you know, these lengthy quarantines that make it very difficult to do business, um, very difficult to network, uh, very difficult to do any sort of exchange, you know, for a journalist to go and work on a story. It just, it, it, it's, it's strong. And it, not only is there not a liberalization occurring, there seems to be no plan for one. There's no sort of statement like, oh, okay, well, when we in Taiwan get to 80% vaccination, we're going to open the doors to vaccinated people. Japan, frankly, even though they got a very late start with vaccination, um, they are up close to 80%. And still, I don't see any plan. I think they cut quarantine from 14 to 10 days. Uh, you have to really be determined to go to Japan to uh, be willing to do 10 days in, in sort of house arrest uh, in order then to, to go and conduct meetings. So uh, what do you think there's any change coming to Taiwan? And does this tell us something broader about Taiwanese culture um, and, it's, and it's, sort of safetyism? Safetyism is the problem here. I mean, uh, besides, you know, buildings and things like that, they seem to be they, 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 they seem to have this issue here of they've gotten in their mind zero COVID. You know, every day you see people celebrating in social media. We had zero cases today and zero people died in this and that. And I'm like, OK, I, I get it. I think that's a good thing. But what's going to happen when you open up? You know, you made the point before we went on air. You know, Singapore is 80 percent vaccinated. People are still dying. I mean, in the U.S., people are still dying. And, and, and what happens is, but life goes on. People, people go on with life. There's something that's taken a hold here, and it's the president's fault, to be honest with you. She's, she's, she and her administration have seemed to embrace this whole idea that they're doing a great job because nobody's dying, and then we're going to keep the place, you know, hunkered down. I'm, I've had COVID, so I have the antibodies. I'm fully vaccinated. I'm tested, yet I'm in a hotel room for 14 days. Nobody's coming here. And by the way, it was hard for me. I mean, I got turned down twice before I before I came. You know, I, I really had to jump through hoops to get a visa to get here. So no business people are coming. If you're a Taiwanese business person and you go abroad to sell something and then you come back, okay, then you have to go 14 days in quarantine. Here's the issue that Taiwan has. Taiwan doesn't seem to be willing to pay any price to be part of the world economic order. In other words, that we're, we're shut down. Look, they're going to have to open up. And the day they open up, they've got a bunch of people in their 80s, vaccinated or not. Somebody's going to get off. It, it's coming. You're not going to never have the disease here, the virus. 
And what's going to happen when we have the first day when we have 75 people die? What's what, what's going to happen here? Are there going to be riots in the streets? Are they going to shut the place down again and again and again? Look, Hong Kong is completely shut down because China is shut down because it's political, it's control, it's everything, it's pre-Olympics, it's everything else. It's China decoupling with all that stuff. It has a lot to do with that. Taiwan should be in the mix right now. They are missing an opportunity. And when you're Taiwan and you're an insecure place, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be doing things. I'll give you a classic example. I had a friend contact me the other day, and she's a serious person, very serious. She wanted to do a peace rally in Taiwan. She wanted to do a giant peace rally and fly in about 4,000 overseas activists. And it wouldn't cost much. She was just wondering how we could do it and the, you know, how it could happen. A giant peace rally in Hong Kong, in, Tai, in Taiwan, Taipei. Like a three-day, so China, don't attack. This is a great city. You know, just fly in, you know, three people. You know, maybe they'll relax the drug laws for a week or something like that. But, you know, because <laughs> the, the peace activists can come in. But the fact of the matter is just have a giant peace festival here. You know, a lot of Westerners, a lot of people from other countries. You can't do that. What a powerful statement that would be. Mm. What a powerful statement to the world that... If thousands of people come and stand around Taipei 101, stand, you know, Westerners, everybody, tens of thousands of people and say, don't attack, don't kill people. OK, that's the defense. Taiwan can't do it because you can't get anybody in here. So in other words, you've got a rescue squad waiting to show up and they're ready to come, but they can't come in. I heard the other day a congressional delegation. You know, when Tammy Duckworth came, I talked to a friend. He said it was a royal pain in the ass. <laughs> he said, he said, the, he said, essentially, every time they wanted to do something, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs would say, oh, we got to check with the CDC. Exactly. Seriously? Seriously? It's, it's, it's out of control here. And it's this mentality. And the people are going to have to address it. And if they don't address it, I'm sorry. I mean, the world is not going to sit here. You know, they're... they're we're we're sending everything we can, but really the peace rally thing. And and you know what? I told her, I said, why don't you come back to it and let's look at doing it in maybe, you know, February or March. But that's, that's something that should happen. I mean, come on, you yourself, you could think of, you know, a couple hundred of people in the U S who would fly over here. You know what I'm saying? Sure. That'd be a very powerful symbol. Powerful symbolism, powerful symbol, and they can't do it because you the oh we're we're not ready for it yet. You better start getting ready for it because what happens here is the people here who come here and meet the Taiwanese people, they go out, they go back to Germany, they go back to other places. You know that that'll mean something to the Chinese. It will mean something that if there's a if you go back to uh, Paris and there's three thousand people just out one day saying, don't invade Taiwan, don't start a war, or in the UK, 7,000 people, and the world starts paying attention. But, you know, it, it's just visionless over here. I mean, it is absolutely, and I, I, it's one of the things I really miss about us not having Apple Daily anymore, because I would be hammering the hell out of them. You know? <laughs> right. Oh, well, it'd, be, it'd be nonstop. 
and it's 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 for all the reasons you said, and also um, as as Hong Kong has ceased to be the financial capital of the Western Pacific, North Asia, however you want to cut it. I mean, the question was, would all of that business exit to Singapore, or would Taipei pick up some and Tokyo pick up some? But uh, I think we have our answer: the financial capital of the Pacific, uh, certainly not San Francisco. It's uh, it can't be Hong Kong anymore. Shanghai will never make the cut. It's Singapore, um, and that's partly just because of missed opportunities. Uh, Look, the, Sing- the Singaporean, the Singaporeans are basically like they remind me they're like quietly sitting there down in a little cave down there, like going, "Okay, come on in, everybody, come in." But Ty- Taiwan may have never been the financial center, but certainly, certainly, this is the place to come in. I mean, you know, across the where the where I'm staying at, there was a there was a family here. You know, it's like, can you imagine bringing a family in? I mean, come on, if they're if you're vaccinated, you're vaccinated, you're tested. Test somebody twice before they show up. Okay, ask them to stay away from people. Have them some type of you know on. on a, they have never had that many cases here. And the, here's the simple fact. Most of the cases they've had here, it's the belief of people who I think know. They've just basically come off boats. In other words, they've been coming across from China. Yeah. You know, they get a, you get a pilot every once in a while or something like that. But, you know, this this idea that zero COVID is, is the goal here, you know, and that's it. And, and also they have the same creeping logic in the U.S., you know. Right. About, um, by the way, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave you after this. Um, one of the things I do tell people, you know, as a as a resident of Florida, um, one of the things I do tell people is, you know, you've now seen the clear winners and losers and you're seeing it come this 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 you know, every single time you turn on a real estate report in the U.S., People are voting with their feet. They are leaving these blue states that clamp down on everybody. And you can actually see it in the electoral races in um, New Jersey, where basically all they're talking about is back to normal. Everything's here. Everything's there. New Jersey, because the, 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 the election's coming up in a couple of weeks, they won't even talk about if there's an outbreak of the school closing things down. Are we trying to believe that none of these schools have been having outbreaks? Nobody's getting sick. Schools aren't closing. Parents aren't up for it. And, and the states that the states that have closed down, it reflects their overall regulatory environment, which is that. Yep. I think the winners are clear here. The states that did not close down and the states that tried to open as much as possible, you know, I think they did just fine. Right, I think the right. countries, I think Sweden, I think Sweden, you know, besides being very attractive people, you know, they actually, <laughs> you know, they, uh, they, they really showed the world. Right, right. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in again soon for another edition of Simon and White. And thanks for being here.